Okay, so for those who don't know me, my name is Ash. Um, I've been part of this church here in Bristol for the past three years. I'm a native of London. I'm married to Jess, and I am dad to Evan. Uh, now, I'd like to take your, your, your minds back a few, a few decades. For many of us, this will be before we were born. I'd like for you to think about 1960 and the, uh, the Rome Olympic Games. There was a man called Cassius Clay who became an Olympic boxing champion. Not long after the Olympics, he threw his medal away. He changed his name to Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali eventually became the world heavyweight boxing champion. And uh, he, he really captured the imagination of the world. And it wasn't just for his, his sporting ability, his athletic prowess. It was also because of his personality, his demeanor. It was infectious. And he had a whole raft of, of catchphrases, and I won't go through them all uh, today. Yeah, you can Google that. But um, his most famous catchphrase was, it was just four words, and it was, I am the greatest. Ali said it regularly and with great conviction. And it's something that I'm, I'm still convinced he believed. So Muhammad Ali referred to himself as the greatest. Let's, let's move the time on a little bit, a few decades. Let's go to 2004. And a certain Jose Mourinho arrives on the shores of the United Kingdom. He comes to manage Chelsea Football Club, a club that had struggled a little bit in previous years. But Jose came in, and, and backed by a little bit of money, um, he helped to turn the side around and turn it into one of the best teams in Europe. Jose had a really good tactical awareness. He had ability to, to spot talented players and to bring them into the team. Now, whereas Ali was referred to as the greatest, Jose Mourinho, well, he was the special one. So we have the greatest and we have the special one. Now, we think of these two guys and we think they're, they're sort of larger-than-life figures. They're sort of, they're way, way out there, aren't they? But the reality is all of us have a similar tendency to occasionally just want to boast just a little bit, maybe if not to the entire world, maybe at least to those around us. We all have this tendency to want to put the spotlight on ourselves from time to time and just let people know how impressive we are. Some of the impressive things that we have done. It is, in fact, very difficult for us to do something impressive and not let people know. So we all have that tendency within us. But in the case of both Ali and Mourinho, these were guys who boasted of their strength, of their ability, of the amazing things that they had done and could do. But ultimately, it was their weakness that was exposed. And actually, very, very sadly, in the case of, of, of Ali, actually, physically, he became very much a shadow of the man that he had been before, and he died back in 2016. In the case of Jose Mourinho, I was... I was hoping that he'd do well. He came to Man United, and he didn't quite manage it, I'm afraid. So his career has taken a bit of a dip. So these were guys who boasted of strength, but it was their weakness that was eventually exposed. Now today we're going to see someone who boasted of weakness, but was found to have strength. And my intention today is that we will see that the path to true strength lies in exposing our weakness to one another and to Jesus. Um, we're going to do that by looking at a part of the Bible. It's, it's called 2 Corinthians. It was a letter written by a man called Paul to a church 
in a place called Corinth. Now, this was a, a fantastic church in, in loads of ways, brilliant church, had a reputation for healings and signs and wonders, many, many gifted people in the church, just like this church. But there was also a, a long list of weaknesses in this church, but there was one in particular that I would like to highlight, and that was that this church in Corinth had lost focus on Jesus. And the reason why this was such a significant problem is that, well, you know, where a church loses focus from Jesus, it almost ceases to be a church anymore. So even as I, I look out in this room, I can see lights and heating and urns and various uh, things at work. The reality is if, if any of those things were removed from the power source, they would cease to function. So the light fittings would still be there, but there'd be no life in them. They wouldn't be doing what they were uh, sort of uh, uh, designed and planned to do. And it's a similar thing with the church. When it loses focus from Jesus, it starts to shrivel up and die. It is weakened. It is diminished. So what had happened was, well, Paul had arrived in Corinth. He had uh, preached the gospel. So it's the good news concerning Jesus, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And what happened was a, a church had formed, a church had gathered around him. Paul had remained for about 18 months or so. He was involved in helping to lead this church and lay some foundations of teaching. And eventually he had moved on to other places, other cities to tell more people about Jesus. And it appears though some people thought, well, there's a bit of a vacuum now at this fantastic church in Corinth. And they had come in, they were essentially, they were false teachers. They were referred to as super apostles. And they had come in and, and subtly, slyly, over time, they had taken the focus off of Jesus and onto themselves. Now, Paul being Paul uh, was someone who wasn't going to have this. Okay, he had to step in, he had to do something. So we're going to look at what Paul did, how it was that Paul got them back on track, how Paul took this church from a place of weakness and intended to bring it back to a place of strength. And we're going to do that in three sections together. We're going to begin with 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through to 6, which say this. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Paul launches in by, uh, by reminding this church in Corinth of an important truth, and that is that the church is the bride of Christ. Now, that probably sounds a little, little weird to our ears, a little strange. But if we were to pause and reflect for a few moments, we could think as we, as we work our way through the Bible, we see a number of pictures and metaphors to describe what the church is like and what the church does. So in some places, you will see the church referred to as the body of Christ. 
In other places, the, the church is, is pictured like a family. And in other places, the church is referred to as a temple. Paul, when he, he writes to a group of churches in, in a sort of Turkey region, he says to them that when they see marriage between a man and a woman, they are seeing something more than just a man and woman deeply in love with one another. When they see marriage between a man and a woman, they're in fact also seeing a picture or a symbol of a higher reality. They are seeing a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. And Paul says that that is a mystery. And in this particular case with the church in Corinth, Paul was the one who introduced the bride to the groom. So he was the one who traveled to Corinth and brought this gospel message, this good news, and he introduced those people to Jesus. He helped to get them into relationship with one another. So Paul clearly has a vested interest in what's going on here. He is emotionally and relationally involved and connected. It isn't just that Paul's got a, a long list of uh, things that he needs to do as an apostle, and one is just to visit churches from time to time and help them out. No, Paul is fully brought into the Corinthians and their relationship with Jesus. Look with me at verse 2 where he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So that's really rich and emotional language. I feel a divine jealousy for you. He didn't just feel that way about the church in Corinth. In fact, he felt that way about every church that he was involved in and connected to. Paul would often travel from place to place. He would visit churches. He would uh, do some teaching. He, he would go away again. He'd send other people on his behalf. He would send some letters. Paul was very much involved with churches. But if you think about it, you could almost boil his, his service to churches as, as, you could use the phrase marriage counselor. Now, you need to track with me on this, okay? So if you're thinking of the church or churches as being the bride of Christ and uh, Jesus himself being the husband or the groom, Paul would oft, would, was often acting like a marriage counselor. But clearly, this is marriage counseling with a difference because in this case, the husband is in fact perfect. Absolutely perfect. Does it, does it all right? So perfectly loving, perfectly kind, perfectly generous, perfectly patient, perfectly understanding. That's Jesus. So it's marriage counseling with a difference. It's almost like a, a, a counseling situation where Jesus is there, Paul is there, the church is there, but all of the questions are directed to the church because we know that it's all good from Jesus' side. It's all absolutely good. Paul has two questions for every church. If you wanted to boil his ministry down to, to you know, a, a kind of a, a kernel, I would say this is it. He's asking two questions of every church. First question, church, how are you enjoying the love that your husband, Jesus, has for you? Okay, so his love is unquestioned. We've heard about it. We've, we've sung about it. How are you enjoying the love that Jesus has for you? Second question, church, how are you growing in your love for your husband, Jesus? That really is what Paul is doing with churches. He's just asking those two questions. That, that's really, you know, all of these books of the Bible, all these letters, really, that's what it's about. Now, for the Corinthians, the answers to those two questions aren't actually particularly positive. Why do I say that? Well, turn with me to uh, verse 3 and 4. 
He says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. We see in verses three and four that for, for the Corinthians, for this church, their hearts are being led astray from sincere and pure devotion to their husband, Christ. They have looked the other way. Their heart has gone the other way. Even though they have the perfect husband, there is no better than him. Somehow they have been swayed by these false teachers, these super apostles who have come in. These super apostles who, bear with me, you know, it was nearly 2,000 years ago, but kind of live in that perfect Instagram life, Okay. So these were the guys who, if you look at their Instagram um, page, it would be, you know, I got up at five in the morning and did the workout, and then six in the morning, the fantastic avocado on toast, and then uh, took the kids to school, and all the photos are just lovely and glorious and fantastic, and you'd get the impression from these people that they never had a bad day. You'd get the impression that they'd never struggled or suffered. It's all good, 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 and all the focus was on themselves. These were the people who came into the church in Corinth and the people lapped it up. They had the best that there was in Jesus and somehow their eyes had turned the other way. That's not how it should have been. You know, I, um, I, I tend to talk a lot about food for some reason. It just, it just pops up and comes out of my mouth. Um, but there's a help, if any of you are ever, ever with me in a, a cafe or a restaurant, there's a helpful way to tell whether I'm enjoying my food or not. If I'm not really enjoying my food, what happens is I start looking around at other people's plates and, and what they've got and thinking, oh, that looks all right, you know. I'm, I'm kind of looking here, looking there, hoping that they might not finish and there might be a little bit left for me. But if I'm really enjoying my food, there could be a brass band coming through the place, there could be an army tank, there could be all sorts. I have no idea what's going on in the rest of the world. My full attention is focused on the plate in front of me. Now, maybe that's just me, it's a character thing, I need to be more interested in people, but that's just me, okay? If I'm enjoying my food, I'm all 100% in. That's how it should have been for the Corinthians. Whatever else came, whatever other message came, whatever kind of distortion to the gospel came, they should have said, look, we're good, we've got Jesus. There's, there's nothing better for us. But they were easily swayed away, Paul says. Paul goes on to say that he isn't, you know, he's not a smooth talker. He's not impressive. Again, like these, these false teachers, these Instagram celebrities. But he does have knowledge. He does know what is good and right for them. It reminds me of uh, my A-levels. I was studying at uh, Merton Sixth Form College. And I remember A-level computing. And part of our computing course involved us doing quite a few exercises, which, to be honest, at times were a little bit boring. I've just got to be honest. And I remember one, one afternoon that the, the class had a bit of a backlash against our teacher, Mr. Addo. And um, he just stood up and said, look, I know my reasons. Crack on. That, that, was, all, that, that was all he said. That was all, there was no kind of negotiation. There was no kind of bringing around. It's like, I know my reasons for setting these exercises. Off you go. There was that sense that he, he knew what was good for us. Even though we didn't want to do the exercises, he knew that if we went through them, we'd be better prepared for our coursework and exams and all of that. He had knowledge. I think that's what Paul is wanting to communicate to this church. I'm not a smooth talker like these guys who've come in, but when it comes to your good, I know what I'm talking about. You take your focus away from Jesus, you're going to be in trouble. 
So Paul wants the Corinthians to enjoy a relationship with Jesus. How does he get them back on track? Well, um, we're going to move on to the next section. That's, uh, we're still in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, and I'm going to read for us verses 16 through to 30, which say this. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as a Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves, for you bear, you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is daily, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. How does Paul get them back on track? Well, verse 18, he says, Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. Now, this begs the question, well, how on earth is that likely to be helpful, Paul? The reason why the Corinthian church got itself into the sticky situation was because it, it responded to the boasting of these false teachers and their fantastic life. How is you boasting going to help anything? Surely that will just take the attention of the church from those false teachers and onto you. They'll put their confidence in you. They will look to you rather than Jesus. And Paul is really clear in the passage, and, and he wants to make it crystal clear that he thinks that boasting is actually foolish. He says it multiple times. I feel really funny doing this. It's, it's not what I would usually do, but, 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 but. He goes on to boast. But there's a big difference here. So where these false teachers were boasting to put the spotlight on themselves and how amazing they were, Paul was going to boast, but Paul was going to do it in such a way that he would strengthen and serve the church in Corinth. So the same means, but like to a different end. Because the Corinthians loved a bit of boasting. They lapped it up. They would have loved Muhammad Ali. They would have loved Jose Mourinho. They would have walked right into that. So Paul boasts because they like a bit of boasting. Paul says, do you know what? Okay, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And Paul begins with his credentials. He lays out some of um, who he is and, and what he's done. But then things go an unexpected direction. And Paul launches into a very long list of experiences. Very, very long list of experiences. And what is it that Paul gives the bulk of his time to explaining or describing? Well, verse 30 tells us, he says, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. 
you look at that, that long list of experiences that he had, and, and no one's looking at that and thinking, well, that's the kind of life that I would like. No, no, not at all. That is not the Instagram life, okay? You don't get any of that up there. But Paul exposes it all. He exposes his weakness. He exposes his frailties. He exposes his difficulties. He exposes his heart as well. Why is it that Paul boasts of his weakness? Well, I think what, what's happening here is Paul is, is moving their focus off of these false teachers and off of themselves and back onto Jesus. Now, last night, um, Jess and myself, we watched uh, Avengers Endgame again, and I won't give it away for those of you who have, have not seen it yet. But um, you know the bit that I really like is actually, like the, the, it's like the, the, the theme music uh, towards the beginning. I just like theme music generally. Um, and particularly in this case, as the theme music is playing, I'm thinking, oh, I'm getting really excited about this. I'm thinking about Iron Man and Thor and Captain Marvel and all these people. The theme music is getting me going. It's turning my mind to that, the actual people involved in the movie, in the story. I think what's happening here, as Paul works his way through this list of troubles and difficulties that he has had, he's trying to almost um, waken the church up from amnesia. He's trying to remind them of, hold on a second. This reminds me of Jesus. This, this, this pain and suffering and difficulty and weakness, this reminds me of the Jesus that I remember loving a little while ago. Okay, just track with me here. So Jesus, um, he is fully God. He has existed as God in eternity. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There was a point in time when Jesus, um, he, he became a man. He entered into the womb of a young Jewish woman, Mary. He was born, he was in a stable surrounded by animals. He was eventually a refugee in Egypt for a few years because his life was in danger. King Herod wanted to kill him. He'd come back with his family. They lived in a town called Nazareth. Nazareth did not have a good reputation. It was looked down on by others. Jesus uh, did a manual job. He was a carpenter. When he began his public ministry of preaching and teaching, all the religious authorities, they, they, they objected to him and opposed him quite vociferously. Even the people in his own town that he grew up with, they did not get him, they did not understand him, they didn't receive him. Even his family didn't get him, they didn't understand him. His closest friends, the guys that he had invested in and spent time with for three years, that is his time of greatest need, they just weren't there for him. They scattered, they fled. And one of those guys, Judas, was instrumental in getting him arrested and taken away and eventually killed. Jesus was put on a cross high up for everyone to see. There were nails put through his hands and his feet. He had a criminal on his left and on his right. As he was dying a slow and horrendous death after hours, he was mocked and jeered. Eventually he did die. He was put in a tomb. Three days later, he came back to life. And 40 days after that, he ascended to the right hand of God, the Father in heaven. It is impossible to look at the life and the message of Jesus and not encounter weakness and suffering. It's absolutely impossible. But this is what the false teachers were trying to do. They were trying to sell the Corinthians a message that took suffering out. Well, I'm sorry, if you take suffering and weakness out, there's nothing left. And I think part of the reason why they were attracted by this message was, well, it is, it is attractive, isn't it? To hear that, um, you know, to hear that you can have relationship with God and that you also can be impressive and there'll be no issues or difficulties or weaknesses in your life, all your troubles will be sorted, that's a really attractive thing. But the reality is it is not true. 
And there are many things that are attractive and yet not true. You know, it's, it's tough for me. As a, as a dad, there are many things I, you know, want to say to my son or, or give to my son. But I realize that, well, it might feel nice to say or to do, but it's not going to serve him well ultimately. As much as I like to play with him throughout the, light, the night and the early hours of the morning, it's good for him to get some sleep. Certainly good for me to get some sleep. When Paul is talking about all of this stuff, he's, he's shifting their attention, their focus back to Jesus, the one who suffered so much more than Paul did for the benefit of the Corinthians. But Paul is also saying something else. I think he's also reminding them that for the Christian, now Christian, the term Christian means a little Christ, for the Christian, our life is also full of weakness and suffering. So it's not just that what Paul is going through is a, is a picture, it is a picture, but there's also the lived experience of a Christian. You know, God created everything perfect. It is not perfect at the moment. We, we live in a broken world. There will be suffering and there will be difficulty for us. And it's, I think it's really important for us to hear that. I think it serves us well to hear that. Because I think if we, if we fall into the trap that the Corinthians did, we'll be utterly unprepared when those difficult times come. So we need to be reminded of the absolute truth that suffering and weakness are part of the life of the Christian. And there will be, as I look across the room, there will be multiplicity of things going on in different lives, different things that we are struggling through and battling through. And I think it's really important for us to recognize that that is the case. It's important for us to recognize that as church, as family, we are here to support one another, to care for one another, to pray for one another. Okay, so suffering and weakness are part of the life of the, uh, the Christian, the believer. What is it that we do, therefore, with our weakness? Well, we're going to move on to the, the final section. That's um, chapter 12, so 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and verses 1 through to 12. And I think that may be um, up on the screen behind me. I won't, I won't read it, but I will summarize and refer to it. So Paul is, is telling a story about um, someone, a man, who uh, had an experience, a glorious experience of the, of the third heaven. We won't go on to talking about what the third heaven is. Had a glorious experience, and he heard things that he, he said that he was unable to tell, things he was unable to utter, an absolutely glorious experience. So Paul has seen and done some amazing things. But I find a few interesting things in this passage. Firstly, um, Paul talks about it as if it was somebody else. He's talking in the third person. It's like me, for example, saying, um, uh, saying to Ben, for example, um, oh, Ben, um, you know, I've got this, I've got this friend, and, um, you know, oh, uh, my friend really likes this girl, but he, he's not really sure how to approach it or whether he's picking up any signals or not. Um, ben, have you got any advice for my friend? Clearly, in that situation, I would not be talking about my friend. I'll be talking about myself. Um, this is theoretical because I am married, so that, that, that wouldn't happen, right? But, 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 that's, but that's what we've got with Paul there a little bit. It's kind of this third person talking of like, he's almost wanting to distance himself from himself. And I think that's from a place of humility. It's like, I've had this amazing experience, but I, I don't want you to be looking at me, putting a spotlight on me, so I'm going to kind of talk in the third person about myself and what I have experienced. 
Verse six, Paul says, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So Paul could go into a great deal more detail about it, and many of us look at that passage and think, Paul, what happened? We'd love to know more. He could go into a great deal more detail, but he doesn't. You see, he doesn't want the people to get carried away. We all have a tendency to get carried away, either with ourselves or with other people. And I, I said to the guys at the, you know, the nine o'clock service, I've, I've been there myself. I'm, I'm, I quite like to eat food and to cook food and be around food. I, I, I worked in food for a little while. And um, you know, time to time, I will make what, a meal that Jess and Evan really, really enjoy. And I'll be like, yeah, great, fantastic, lovely. And then my mind will start to turn. I'll think, well, oh, should I sign up for MasterChef next year? Am I, am I, you know, am I of that, that, that level? I'm getting carried away. I'm nowhere near MasterChef level, okay? But we all do it, don't we? We all get a little bit carried away. Paul is not wanting the Corinthians to get carried away with him and his experience. And neither is God. As we, we, we read on, Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh. There's some kind of physical ailment that comes to him. It's not clear what it is or where it is in his body, but it's just referred to as a thorn in the flesh. So Paul received a physical ailment. Now this thing, it was, it was from Satan, it was allowed by God, and, and ultimately it was for the purpose of Paul's good and God's glory. And, and we need to be really, really clear at this point that suffering in and of itself, there's nothing inherently good about suffering. I want that to be clear and to be understood. There's nothing inherently good about suffering. God made the world perfect, perfectly. That's good grammar, I don't know. Um, the world is broken at the moment, but there is the promise that one day Jesus will return and everything that is broken will be fixed and made right and good again. That is the promise of the Bible. So there's nothing inherently good about suffering. However, in the in-between bits, the reality is we all experience pain and suffering and weakness. And oftentimes, what, what God will do is he will, he will maybe take something from Satan and he will turn it and he will use it for good. And that's what we find in this particular situation. This thorn in the flesh has come to Paul to keep him from becoming too proud or too conceited because of what he has heard in this third heaven. So what does Paul do? Well, I think Paul's response is entirely right. This is clearly a significant problem for him. But he doesn't just kind of stoically um, accept it and be like, well, you know, that's my lot, that's, that's how it is. But he's also not sort of triumphalistic and saying, oh, God will, God will just sort it and I'll be fine. No, he comes in his weakness and he brings it to God. The passage says that three times he pleaded with the Lord to take it away, to take this thorn in the flesh away. You see, Paul, Paul, Paul knew, he had some knowledge, he knew a few things. He knew that God loved him. God had immense love for him. He knew that God was ultimately, he was all-powerful. God could do anything. Paul actually had been used powerfully by God in healing. There was a day where he saw someone raised from the dead. So Paul was utterly convinced of both the power and the love of God. So because of that, Paul in his weakness comes to God and pleads that he would take this thorn in the flesh away. Three times. But God doesn't take the thorn in the flesh away. He leaves the thorn in. 
God leaves a thorn in, but God stands with him in his weakness. He stands with him in his weakness, and he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And I think that's, that, that ought to be, the, I suppose, the lived experience for all Christians. For, as Christians, we all walk with a limp. And for some of us, that would be, be physical things, physical things that we are currently working through. For many of us, there'll be, you know, there'll be relational issues, uh, there'll be emotional, loads of different things. There'll be some people in this room who would love to have children, it's not worked out yet. Or you'd love to have a husband or wife, it's, it's not panned out for you. Or you're really struggling with the work context that you're in at the moment. You're thinking, how on earth am I going to cope? There'll be a whole range of experiences in this room. We all walk with a limp, multiple limps, in fact. Okay? None of us live that perfect Instagram life. We might occasionally want to present that, but the, the, the lived experience of reality is somewhat different. Okay? We all have weakness. So I believe that we can and should pray for God to break through and bring healing in those areas. We should pray for like, the miraculous power of God in some of those things. Absolutely. That was the response of Paul. Okay? Paul recognized God's love and God's power and humbly came to him and asked. He pleaded three times. I think that's a good response. But the reality is, and we've seen it in Paul's experience, that the thorn was not taken away. And God doesn't always remove the barrier or the weakness or the suffering or the difficult thing. He doesn't always do it. But there is one thing that we can have confidence in, that God does come and he brings himself. He brings himself he brings with him comfort and strength and peace and security, God's presence. And you know, you know at times, to see, the, to see the breakthrough power of God is, is glorious. It's fantastic. And we want to be about that as a church, seeing you know, healing signs and wonders. Absolutely. But it's also often glorious to see the sustaining power of God in weakness and difficulty, and um, I'd just like to end by telling a, a personal story of mine. And um, nine, nearly nine years ago, I received a call at work. It was from my mum. And she'd called to tell me that my 18-month-old nephew had just died. Now, this was a huge shock to me, for one. Um, I wasn't aware that he was unwell. Um, and it was a grievous pain to me. I loved him. I adored him. He was my first nephew. And I was in a complete complete flood of tears. I was in an absolute puddle. I didn't know what to do. It didn't make sense to me. It came completely out of the blue. Now, I remember speaking to my sister later on that day on the phone. My older sister, she's nine years older than me, and she called to say, look, Ash, you know, you need to come back to London. I just, I just need you to be here and to support and be with the family. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. Like, I'm the younger brother here. Like, usually, it's the other way around. I, I, I have nothing to offer. It's like, well, on the one hand, I'm dealing with my own pain, and I need to go and support my family as well. I remember going down and going to the funeral, and it was a very emotional occasion. As a, as a family, we were struggling with it. We were still very much coming to terms with it. We still are, nine years later. But um, it's just worth saying that before he died, there were people praying for him that he would live, people praying for a miracle. Now, my nephew did not live. He, he, he died. So we didn't see the, the, the kind of the breakthrough, miraculous power of God. But I've got to be honest, on that funeral day, I, I, I was in pieces, most of the family were in pieces. But I remember speaking to my sister, and um, 
she quoted some words from the, from the Bible from a, a book called Job, and she said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, I believe my sister was not just saying what Christians ought to say in those circumstances. It wasn't just a copy and paste job. She was saying it, and she absolutely believed it. Now, I've got to tell you guys here today that though we didn't see the breakthrough, miraculous power of God in, in saving my nephew, I saw the power and the glory of God right there. Because what I was seeing and what I was hearing was not at all natural. It wasn't natural. It wasn't normal. It was God coming in and bringing strength. Of all of the people in that room, it was Samuel's mum who seemed to be the strongest out of everyone. We're all in floods of tears. She was clearly struggling. Don't get me wrong. She was struggling, and it was hard, and it was difficult. But what I, what I could see at, at that point was God coming in, bringing strength, bringing peace, bringing security. And I will never forget it. And I reflected later on. My sister was um, quite instrumental in me becoming a Christian, and I, I've looked up to her um, over the years. And it made me realize that actually that wasn't an isolated incident. I actually realized that you know, my sister's not, she's not special. I, you know, I love her, and I think she's fantastic, but she's not like... She's not special, okay? And she has, has had difficulties. And she's... It's just this thing of consistently, when you're in relationship with someone, okay, particularly in the context of, of church or if you have a family who are followers of Jesus, you get a, a, a close-up view oftentimes of God's work. And I realize that over time, I have seen him consistently keep her and sustain her. I've seen the consistent, sustaining power of God in her life. So the reason why I wanted to end on that story was, was not just that we would think in terms of the really big, grand crises moments, but that we would realize that God stands with us whatever we are in. So yes, on the one hand, let's in faith pray for the breakthrough, miraculous power of God, but let's also pray that God would be with us whatever we are in. And because God loves us, whatever it is, he is absolutely interested and he wants to stand with us he wants to bring us strength on our part all it is is coming humbly the bible says that god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble okay so like my son evan one of the one of the first words that we taught one of the first phrases that he learned was help me literally help me okay and he says it regularly and often but you know what i think it's fantastic that ought to be our disposition okay god help me help me help me help me yeah Let's not be too proud, let's not be too confident, but let's humbly come to God with all of our brokenness and all of our weakness and say, God, I've got nothing. Please, please, please help me. You know, and I think, you know, I would love it if as a church in an increasing way that we, you know, as, you, as we look around, there'd be plenty of testimonies of the, of the breakthrough power of God, but also plenty of testimonies of God keeping people in really hard and difficult times. Because that is to God's glory. When you can look around and you know, like, look at people and think, oh, yeah, I remember that time that God did that and God did that. That's the kind of church that we should want to be. Okay, at this point, I'd like to um, invite the, the musicians to come back up. And maybe just for, just for a minute or two, these guys will play uh, reasonably quietly in the background. And um, I'd just, just, just like for us to take some time to pause and reflect. To pause and reflect. Um, maybe on some of our own brokenness, some of our own weakness. It's very difficult to be left alone with your own thoughts at times, isn't it? Um, but I think it's important for us to reflect on those, those areas of life that we maybe at times struggle with. But not just to leave it there, to begin to turn our thoughts to the God who stands with us.
in those things. And for some of you might remember times in your life where God has stepped in. The situation has remained the same, but God has been with you. And you might be encouraged by that. And for others, you might have seen the fantastic, miraculous breakthrough power of God. It'd be good to reflect on that. Some of us here today, we're feeling like, well, I, I can't even see God in the midst of all this stuff. I really cannot see him. And I would say that as we, you know, as we spend time um, reflecting and then singing, there'll be uh, probably time after the service for us to stand together with one another in some of those issues and, to, and to, to pray, to pray for God's presence to be with you, okay? Please don't let that hang. Please don't let that linger. Let's support one another as church together.